Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 24, The Wheel in the Sky Keeps on Turning, where we will be looking at Chapters 47 through 49 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of breaking out of cycles. For those that are new here, an explanation of the pod. Each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. At that point... We will share recommended things of the week and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Now, before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Doll Books. Second, our discussions naturally assume that you have either A, already read all of the books in the Kingkiller Chronicle, or spoilers just don't bother you. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. Also, a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love to explore. So that out of the way, it's time for 45 second recap. So it's my turn and I am risking cherries this week. As you do every other, every other week. Correct. So you got your timer ready? Surprisingly enough. Yes, I do. For once. (laughs) In three, two, one. Go. While japing with the regs, Chronicler attracts Quoth's attention. Quoth spends a tale from the dregs of Chronicler's inventions. Thus properly chastened, Chronicler makes his amends, so that the story he can hasten and to its details attend. Quoth's search for the Amir is a study in roadblocks, for the story is unclear and hidden behind locks. Lunch with Elksadal invites Quoth to relent and take a vacation, small, and examine where his energy spent. With Will, Sim, and Manette, Quoth blows off some steam, and with additional prodding yet, he finally listens to his team. 29.32 seconds. Congratulations, no cherries for you. As I suspected. Nor will there be cherries for me since you do the grocery shopping. Them's the breaks. You could always go grocery shopping yourself. Yeah, no. Cherries are out of season, and fake cherries are fake cherries. So let's go ahead and dive in. This is a study of people getting caught in cycles and trying to figure out a way out of them. We start off with an interlude at the Waystone with Chronicler trying desperately to get Quoth to talk about how this trial worked out by prodding old Cobb into telling his version of the story. So if last times, I just don't want to tell the story of the trial is kind of like gently letting the people down. This is more like, could you just stop? Knock that off. I see what Chronicler's trying to do here. As an incident manager in IT, oftentimes my job is to get people to tell a story that maybe they don't want to. And in those sorts of situations, when no one is willing to tell you the right story, sometimes you've got to tell the wrong story because they'll love to correct you. And then you get exactly what you want. I can see Chronicler trying this tack here with Kvothe. And it's annoying, Kvothe, not prodding him into actually telling the stupid story now, is it? It does kind of backfire here because then Quoth just makes up the story about the great wizard chronicler. And then he tells it to the person that is the self-professed storyteller of noir. 
And he knows that there's going to be a wake tonight and it's the same day as the harvest. So everyone's gathered around. They're going to hear Cobb talking about this new amazing protagonist of all of the fun old tales. So instead of Quoth getting stuck into like Taberlin the Great story, it's going to be the Chronicler. That said, there is an element, I think, here of wish fulfillment that Bast adds in. Anything that Chronicler writes in his book actually becomes true. That wasn't Bast. That was Quoth. What was Bast was the sword made out of paper that if Chronicler wrote a name in his own blood along its blade, then that person would die. Yeah, that was a good touch. Yeah. I feel a little bit like Fred Savage's character in The Princess Bride. Get the story right. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> and I think there's also a case here of Kvothe being someone who spent a lot of his early life cultivating a lot of these stories and rumors about himself, kind of not liking being on the receiving end of it. Kind of. I mean, he seems more annoyed than maybe he has a right to. They're not really telling stories about him. They're telling stories about Quoth, as in Quoth with air quotes. Yeah, it's just a character who happens to bear the same name as Arkvoth. At this point, yeah, because all of these are like tall tales, which makes me wonder what the time gap really was. At least it was long enough for those stories to make their way all the way to Noir, which is really off of all of the beaten paths. It's not on any major trade routes. Like, if you're living in a gossip society, which effectively Temerant is, you know, and there isn't really a whole lot of noble connections in the area, there aren't many people of import who come through, it takes time for these stories to filter out. Or filter through and then to morph along the way. Now, Cobb kind of reminds me a little bit of Luis from Ant-Man. A little bit. One of the things he says is, I heard it from a fella who knew a woman that's seen it herself. And all I have in my head is the ending scene of Ant-Man where there's just, you know, person after person after person telling the story that's morphing over time. And you know what he said? He said yes. And that's just playing in my head as I'm reading. One of the things that also gets me about this is we see Coat over in the corner as Old Cobb is telling the story. Afterwards, he says, and he lived happily ever after, which is sort of this wistful feeling. Like He kind of wishes that if we'd stop the story there, we'd have that happy ending, which reminds us that happy endings really only exist if you stop the story in the right place. So it's a little melancholy there, and we can see Kvothe kind of mourning the hero he used to be. This almost in itself creates a new cycle, because while it's breaking old Cobb's cycle of telling Kvothe stories, it is now creating a cycle of old Cobb telling Chronicler stories. And Kvothe seems to think that this is some kind of retribution towards Chronicler. Like, I took it a little bit too far, but you're going to be the talk of the town now. And that is 
massive punishment, at least in the eyes of someone who is an edema rue. I think also there is a sense where he's hitting at the fact that people want their privacy and their agency. Like, so when we look at public figures, for instance, which Foth is functionally a public figure, we act like we have the right to their private lives, that we're entitled to have access to their relationships, their friendships, to know things about them that really should be reserved for their family and friends. Then we start ascribing motives to them and acting as if we know them when really all we know is just a character that we see on TV and Instagram and internet and tabloid sites. There's even a sentence here that says, when someone tells you a piece of their life, they're giving you a gift, not granting you your due. I really like that as a kind of remembrance of, hey, these people are still people. You are not entitled to a piece of them. Especially when you look at, like, on Twitter, people sort of have these ideas that they can judge an entire person based on 200 characters worth of a tweet. Or just a single action. And that they then can both know and pass judgment upon that person. And it's a complicated thing. It's far more complicated than life on Twitter. And this is just a friendly reminder to all of our followers on Twitter. Twitter is not real life. It's just one particular aspect of some people's lives. We aren't entitled to know these people any more than they want to be known. And that's, I think, something we have to respect. One other thing I'd like to touch on before we leave the storytellers alone. All of the stories that are now being told from Quoth or Coat to Old Cobb to kind of jog his memory on stories and folklore that he can just kind of insert Chronicler into seem to be following the rule of threes. So there's kind of a rule of threes in design and there's kind of a rule of threes in storytelling. Like there are three main facts that you need to know about this story. There's three act structure. The king knew Chronicler's weaknesses that if you trick Chronicler into drinking ink, he has to do the next three favors that you ask of him. And more importantly, he knows that Chronicler can't control you if you have your name hidden away somewhere. So to, to round out the three things about Chronicler is he doesn't know the king's secrets. And the king's name is now written in a book of glass, hidden away in a box of copper, and that box is locked away in an iron chest where no one can touch it. There's three things that are protecting the king's name. So we've got these threes constantly showing up in these stories. And it's fun to see these stories being both kind of created, but also little bits and pieces taken from other stories to create this new one. It's following these structures that people have come to expect from stories and then allowing people to then start playing with them. And it's an act of creation and remix. Kind of love it. All right. So everyone, this is Phoenix jumping in while I'm actually in the middle of editing because I realized that there's something that I wanted to make a point about, but I didn't 
when we were recording together. And unfortunately, Will is actually working his real job at this particular moment. So I can't have the discussion with him. But it's something that just tickled my brain enough to want to jump in and record a new little bit. Also, as might be obvious, I'm a little more interested in the lore aspect of the books than Will. So you get my take on things, or at least my notice of something. So in talking about how the king has hidden his name in a book of glass, hidden in a box of copper, and then that box is locked away in a great iron chest where no one can touch it. It's very similar to the lockless box. It's made out of roa wood, making it extremely heavy and dark colored, like iron. It's described as being smooth as polished glass and potently fragrant. It has three locks, one of iron, one of copper, and one that is unseen. The box that the name of the king is hidden away in is copper, and then there's one of iron, and the name is written on glass, which is transparent. There are little parallels. There's been theories that I've heard about how it's possible that somebody's name has been locked inside the lockless box, kind of the way that Jax captured the moon, or at least partway captured the moon. So this could be alluding to Kvothe's name. This could be alluding to even Denna's name, as we're not 100% certain that Denna's name is actually Denna. There's been theories and things that I've seen regarding how Denna may have been chosen because she's addicting like dinner resin. But overall, I think it's interesting how Coat, Quoth, whatever, has made a story about a king that knows chronicler secrets, who has this box inside a box containing a name. Just something to think about. Anyway, back to editing. Thanks for letting me ramble. All right, so now we move back to Quoth's story, and he's spending more time at the archives, searching for the Amir, and not having a lot of luck. And annoying Will. And I think probably everybody else. Yeah, but Will and he are stuck in a room together. So Quoth has gotten his admission slot, which is the start of every academic cycle for him. Ugh, this is so familiar at this point. We are 370-something-odd pages in, and how many terms has he gone through, and how much do we have? And I got my admissions tile, and this one was at this slot, and this one, you know, I needed to change this and whatnot. But now he's actually in a groove where he's like, and this was a later slot, and it gave me time to study, and it gave me time to get more money, and it gave me time to... And I was confident because I had money in my purse and I had et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It just, it's so much of that turning of the wheel. Yep. It's an ongoing cycle for him. And he's kind of stopped examining why he actually is doing any of this. Once we get into a pattern, sometimes we just stop noticing why we got into that pattern or what makes that pattern work for us. 
And we definitely don't notice, unless it's egregious, when that pattern stops being beneficial. So he's doing things by habit. Here he's been searching through the archives for the Amir, and it's not going the way he'd hoped. It's almost like a secret order of warrior clerics doesn't want to leave a detailed historical record of their ways, practices, and deeds. Go figure. And he's figured this out. He's figured out three possible explanations for this. One, nothing was written down, which seems highly unlikely. Uh, They were too important to be so entirely neglected by historians, clerks, and the obsessive documentation of the church. Could be by odd chance that copies of the books that do have this information have simply never made their way to the archives. But this is also so highly improbable as to verge on impossible. And then finally, someone must have removed the information, altered it, or destroyed it. And we've already got elements that indicate that there has been some alteration of the historical record, as discovered by Puppet when looking at Feltemi Rays. So Quoth suspects that the Amir are older than the Talon Church, and he's searching for confirmation that other people will accept, because all he's got are the piece of pottery, the things he's overheard the Chandrian saying after they slaughtered his family, and then the stories from Scarpy and Trappus. Yeah, so the amount of just pure determination that he has to find something has been met with this significant absence of information. So there's a void. That's the name of the chapter, significant absence. But I can see where he wants to fill that void with something. But the problem is he keeps going back to where there isn't any information. He has discovered that there is no information in the archives that will do anything to either confirm or deny his theories. So he just runs rampant with his theories. And he just keeps going back, figuring that if he finds some hidden book lost away, that if he keeps scouring, he'll run up against something. And this is not really a useful cycle, but this is the pattern that he's built up. I have a problem. I go search the archives. And if it's not there, I keep looking until I find it there. And let me put it this way. Last episode, we talked about our cat going missing in the house somewhere. And I looked under the bed and he wasn't there. And I kept going back to the bed, just hoping maybe I missed something. I came no closer to finding him because I wasn't looking where he actually was. I was just going through a pattern of places where I knew to look. And I wasn't actually thinking about Where did Sokka run off to? Where could he have run off to? Right. Neither one of us looked in the one room that we swear he couldn't get into because, of course, he's not there. So let's just look under the couch three times. Right. And in this case, the Amir are our cat. And Kvothe keeps going back to the couch and the bed and thinking maybe he can find something there. But he's just trapped in the cycle. And I love like how Willem is just sitting here patiently listening to all of this. And I don't think it's that Willem doubts Quoth. It's just he doesn't see the value in obsessing over this the way Quoth has. 
Now, there is something else to be said. Will actually asks, what leads you to the belief that there's more to this story? And you know what? It's the same thing I keep saying. If Quoth would just talk to people about the things that he is worried that he'll be judged for, considering that we're watching this and he is already being judged for his behavior, it doesn't freaking matter. You know, he'd probably get a little bit further. And here's the interesting thing. So he has a need that's very personal. For everyone else, this is purely academic. Like, as far as Will and Sim are concerned, this is just, eh, this is a curiosity. It is unusual, but it's hardly something that they're going to spend a lot of their energy thinking about. It reminds me a little bit of how, like, when I was a kid, there was so many mentions of how the Bermuda Triangle was this place that so many shipwrecks and plane wrecks and all of these mysterious and paranormal things were happening all over this section of the globe. And I and other people that I knew that were also children at the time were very obsessed with why is this a thing? And then looking at the adults around, it's like, why don't you care about this? I felt that way about UFOs too. Like, why aren't people doing something about this? These are things we got to know. Why aren't you looking into this? One of the other things that I find interesting is Willem says, okay, so let's accept this idea that someone has scrubbed the Amir from the record. What makes you think that it's the Amir themselves that have done the scrubbing? This actually gives a little bit of weight to the idea that maybe Lauren is secretly part of the Amir because of the book that, what's his face, the Duke of Gibeah? Yes, that dude wrote and had the greater good motto hidden in an illuminated letter. And then Lauren just, give me the book. And now I'm betting anything that if Quoth went looking for that book, it wouldn't be anywhere. It's probably been black hold. Yeah. There are also a lot of books in the archives that he will never have access to. And you know why? Because they are in Lauren's office. Even then... It's one thing to say there is someone scrubbing the archives. It's something else altogether to speculate as to where their allegiance truly lies. Or that it's an organized effort. Indeed. Because as any project manager knows, I'm just going to say this. The, the thing that kills so many conspiracy theories for me is the thought that it could be this global... <laughs> something with a puppet master pulling the strings. And I'm like, have you ever tried to get a large number of people to all do the same thing? Try taking a photo at a family reunion and getting everyone to actually look at the photographer. Not only that, try setting up a major project and ensure that nobody breaks NDA. Let's be real, most people will keep their NDA. But you always know that the larger your project is, sooner or later, someone will let something slip to the wrong people. Right. How is this all still a secret? How is this all being organized and no one is letting any of it out? 
Finally, Will asks probably the first question that Quoth needs to answer, which is, have you been drinking? No? Maybe you should start. <laughs> really quick before that, the way that Quoth starts going down this rabbit hole of, well, so let me posit something to you. Does this sound reasonable? Okay, so if that's reasonable, then this is reasonable. And it's going ever further into absolute bat shirt crazy land. And he's like, but that previous thing that I said was reasonable. So this is reasonable. So this is also reasonable. And then he comes down to like, just nuts. I picture Quoth here as the Charlie Day meme from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with a great big yarn board and everything. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, that frenzied look in his eyes and, and Willem is just like, okay, buddy, you need a break. You need to come up for some air. Come on. And then to hammer home one last thing, when Quoth started spewing all of this to Simon, Simon looks at him and just goes... You should talk to Lauren about that. And then the next words are, I didn't. <laughs> of course he didn't. Of course he didn't. There is an expert within reach of you who is one of your teachers. And one thing that I know about teachers is that they like to teach people things. They like to be asked things. They really do. I know so many professors and they're just like, if the person would just ask me. I could help them, but I can't proactively meddle with every single student, especially the ones that don't seem to want my help. Not my circus, not my monkeys, unless they ask. Speaking of, let's move on to chapter 49, The Ignorant Edema, where we actually see a professor taking an active interest in Kvothe's well-being and life. And it's kind of touching to me. I have some fond memories of professors who would proactively talk with me like this, and it means a lot. So while Quoth is preparing for admissions and getting ready to go in and talk with the masters and everything, he crosses paths with Elksadal, who's like, ah, just who I was looking for. Maybe Denna needs a couple of lessons on how to run into Quoth by accident. She could start by frequenting the other side of the river. Anyway... Elksadal says, hey, tell you what, you want to go grab lunch or a drink or something? And at this point, Elksadal has been incredibly helpful to Kvothe in his academic career and his personal life. Because remember, Elksadal is one of the people who helped bail Kvothe out before his trial and helped him prepare. So this is someone who thinks highly of Kvothe, thinks that he's worth protecting and that he's a valuable person to know. One thing I would also point out, though, is that when we compare Elksadal to Arwill, who runs the Medica, so the Medica it takes up a lot of Arwill's cycles. So we've got that. And then we've got Lauren, who takes care of the archives. So there's a lot of cycles being spent there. And then we've got Kilvin, who runs the fishery. Like, I don't know that Elksadal really has a lot of extracurricular activity going on. So he actually has the time to put into an investment of a student, a single student, or multiple single students in a way that the others just don't seem to have. Kilvin doesn't really look at anything that happens much outside the fishery because he's got so much on his plate managing that. 
he's running effectively an apprentice shop, which is its own business in its own right. Meanwhile, yeah, Arwill is basically running a teaching hospital, which, again, in its own right, that is its separate school all on its own. And meanwhile, Elksadal has this ability to actually talk to his students casually and informally like this. So this is a talk that doesn't happen in an office. It doesn't happen in a workroom. It does, however, happen in a restaurant that is probably, definitely, outside of Kvothe's range of I can pay for anything. And he already has offered Elksadal, hey, I'll buy you a drink or something. And I'm like, oh, you don't offer to buy a drink for someone and then let them pick the place. Yeah, you got to be very careful what you offer there. But I do love how Elksadal's like, well, I can't have a drink because I got to do admissions after this. And then they get there and they get to ordering and goes, well, one glass should be fine. <laughs> that shouldn't impair my judgment too much. You know, this really reminds me of some of the conversations I had with my advisor when I was in college. And, you know, he and I would have these sort of informal conversations, getting outside of the pinecone curtain, as it was called, getting off campus, getting somewhere casual where there's just not the same expectations, where you can just be two people talking as equals. And so here we get a couple things. First of all, Elksadal mentions that Kvothe is someone who's probably grown up a lot faster than he had to have. Right. He asks Kvothe his age and Kvothe lies and says 17. So he's 16. The difference between 16 and 17 is not that huge in most adults' eyes. And it's a reminder that Kvothe is doing a lot of stuff at this young age that most people who are able to do this stuff don't get into until their 20s. So he's already ahead of the curve. So he's at this, what to Kvothe is an extravagant lunch. And Dahl starts talking about how much he likes Kvothe as a student. And Kvothe is trying to figure out why this is all happening. Like almost in that, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And then people with overactive imaginations or that overthink or have anxiety, hi, me, go, oh God, why? 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 What should I be worried about? Fight or flight is going in my head. Oh my God, what the heck? And it's almost like, almost to the point where it's grotesque on how much rich food is coming in. Kind of like the feast for Denethor. Mm -hmm. And Kvothe is just sitting there like, What's the motivation? I don't understand. I feel very threatened. What in the heck? And Dahl is really thinking that this is just a nice lunch. And he's saying, so Quoth, maybe you ought to take a break. And Quoth is just like, what? I think also the most telling thing here is Dahl asks Quoth, so you're moving through the university here at a pretty good clip you're probably going to have graduated before you know it. What's your plan after you're done? What's next after the university for you? What are you trying to accomplish? And you can also see how Kvothe is very much focused on the very next thing, not the next thing down the line, big, huge steps. He's more like little steps because he's like, wait, 
Wait, is Dahl trying to take me away from Eladin? Which would be a blessing, thank you, to be an Eltha? He's got this overinflated sense of his belonging, but at the same time also going, but I have no idea what's going on. And I think this is also telling of the cycle that Kvothe has trapped himself in. He has trapped himself into the belief that his advancement through the university is the extent of his path, that this is the cycle that he has to go through, that this is just what you do. And he hasn't really thought about what his long-term goals are and how his studies can help lead him down that path. We can see that Kvothe is definitely someone who's been thinking so tactically for so long that he has not remembered to think strategically. He hasn't really thought about what his ends are, what he's really trying to accomplish, why he's studying. And he is rapidly running out of things that he can get meaningfully from the university at his current pace. One would say that he hasn't learned to stop and pause and think through the ramifications of anything. It's very interesting to see how Kvoth misses the point a lot of times. And so Dahl leaves him with a parable, that of the ignorant edema. You got to know that Dahl didn't choose that title by accident. He's testing Kvoth. He wants to see if Kvoth will rise to provocation. I think he also wants to see if Kvoth will then listen to what he actually is trying to tell him, or if he will get caught up in the minutia. So in this parable, we start with a brilliant arcanist at the university who has been rising through the ranks and has read every book in the archives. He's taken all the classes, he's mastered them, he's learned all the languages. He has checked every box on the scorecard. He has got a resume longer than your arm. He's got, you know, literally everything on an admissions letter that says, yes, I am a full human being. Except he doesn't actually have all the full human being. As we'll discover. But he's an academic. He is full on, knows all of the philosophy, knows all of the literature, all of this stuff that makes him think that he is wise. And therefore he is conflating wisdom and intelligence. Not only that, he is conflating education with intelligence. He has had the opportunity to apply his intelligence through his education and to hone it. But that is not what makes him intelligent. The amount of stuff that he knows is not a mark of his intelligence. His intelligence is how he's able to apply what he has learned, as we shall see. So anyway, he's out chasing the wind, which is sort of the colloquial expression for taking a term off, or three. and. As he's traveling, he comes to a lake and he hires an Edema Rue boatman to carry him across. And so naturally, because it's a fairly long journey, he tries to strike up a conversation. And being someone who has never left academia, all he knows to talk about are books and philosophy and you know all of these esoteric subjects of which the boatman knows nothing. Because how could he? He has not been exposed to them. And throughout all of this, the arcanist is kind of haughty and judgmental of the boatman. He's like, I think it's everyone's duty to be as educated as humanly possible. Blah, 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 blah. 
he is holding his literacy over the boatman's head. However, there's these great big black clouds on the horizon and the wind starts to kick up and the boatman says, hey, look, it's going to get really rough here in a few minutes. That's our first key that the boatman is probably smarter than he's let on because he knows how to read the signs of the weather around him to know what that's going to mean, to know that this means trouble. And he says, okay, we're probably going to have to swim the rest of the way. Because he has practical wisdom. And then the arcanist response is the ultimate punchline. But I do not know how to swim. For all of his education and learning, he hadn't really respected the knowledge of the people around him, the world around him, and he hadn't had a chance to really test all of his learning against the real world. There is a detail here, though, at the end. Dahl drank off the last of his wine and turned the cup upside down and set it firmly on the tabletop. Remind you of anyone? Scarpy. That's right, he does do that. I had forgotten that. So I would say that that probably endears him a little bit to Quoth. And I love how Quoth's response is, well, you got the accent wrong. <laughs> and then Dahl's response, though, is, but all stories have an element of truth to them. What do you say to that? And that ends up, I think, really also being something Scarpy-ish. I like the way that he says it. Not only is my story designed to delight and entertain, but there is a kernel of truth hidden within where only the cleverest student might find it. Now, that's playing to Kvothe's ego because have you ever seen those only 17% of blah, 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 blah can do this thing? Oh, yeah. It's upside down. Come on. And all I think when I see those is just like, who falls for this? Well, I mean, I know who. I'm not going to name names. The people who keep posting it on my timeline. Oh, I know who. <laughs> anyway. But because there's actually probably a larger percentage, and when I say probably, I mean definitely, a larger percentage of people who can read things upside down or backwards than what the statistic listed is. Everyone who is sharing this thinks that they are so smart. And I'm like, oh my goodness, there's a reason I don't share this. And it's because I am aware that there are more smart people that can do this thing. And this is an insult to my intelligence. So we next cut to Kvothe hanging out with Minette and Will and Sim. And he tells them what Dahl has told him, and they all immediately go, yeah, he's telling you to take a term off, dummy. I mean, he said as much. He literally said those words. You should take some time off. I like, though, that Minette is just like, he's giving you a hint, Thickwit. That is not a hint. It is directly actually saying it very forthrightly. Hints could be misinterpreted. Literally, literally, what, what does he say? He says... You might want to consider taking a term off to relax a bit. Travel a little. Get some sun. If you take the word might out of that sentence, it's no longer a hint. It's, I think, also some very good advice. Yes. Because Quoth is in this cycle. He doesn't know why he's doing the things he's doing anymore. 
He doesn't know what his real purpose is. And so his efforts are haphazard. And he's not achieving what he's actually setting out for. And it's hilarious to me that Manette is like, just take the time off. So there's number two. And then he asks, Will, like, really? Are you serious? Like, is that something I should... Take the time off, thick wit. And then finally, Simmons says, I'm telling you three times, take the time off. Right. Even Ambrose isn't this thick. Come on. Right. Because part of it is also Quoth doesn't really understand what his trial actually cost the university. Right. Because for him, it's just a bit of his cleverness getting him out of a tough scrape. But he's not really thinking about the fact that even though he has been proven innocent in the eyes of the law, people are still looking at the university in a way that they hadn't before. It's had a consequence for him and for them, even as Quoth hasn't really considered it. People are looking at the arcanists in training and going, oh, y'all are dangerous. Pretty much. If someone goes to trial for a crime... And through the course of the examinations, they get exonerated. Nobody looks at that person and says, yep, they're definitely innocent. We look at that and say, this person was exonerated for a crime, but there has to have been a reason why they were even under suspicion in the first place. And it has a consequence. It's not like, okay, it's all wiped clean. Nobody's going to think twice about it. Also, the masters at the university have a longer memory, apparently, than Quoth does. Well, they know their history, and it's been drilled into them. They know exactly what it's cost. I'm saying that they can remember two freaking weeks ago. <laughs> and that Quoth is like, what? It happened like a month ago. What's the matter? Look, they said I was innocent. I don't understand what's the problem. Dude, if they let you back in this term, you are going to be absolutely screwed on purpose and not in the fun way they're gonna set the tuition so high that Quoth cannot hope to afford it even if he takes out a massive loan with Davy which he really shouldn't do and Davy probably wouldn't do right that means he's going to be in debt way up beyond his eyeballs he's already in debt up to his eyeballs but <laughs> He's going to be buried under a mountain of debt that will, again, further hamstring his ability to progress. And the period up to this point has been the Masters trying to get Quoth to pull his head out of his butt and look at what he actually wants to do and push himself. And this is Elk Zadal telling him, I think you need to push yourself somewhere else. I think you need to get some perspective that you can't get here. It's good advice. As wonderful as school can be, it's also very isolating. That's something that I notice with when I went to school for the four years at DigiPen. It's almost like time was frozen a few years earlier. And progress at a university is glacial. So by the time that you get to something that was relevant in 2011, it's probably 2016. Not only that... You just have to understand that when all you're concerned with is passing your next class, trying to complete these classes, oftentimes you're not even really thinking about what is it that I'm going to learn in this class and then take with me? Like I can tell you this right now, I don't remember every book that I read. 
I don't remember every lesson I learned. I don't remember every point of reference that I picked up in my education. What I do remember is learning how to look at a text, any text, and then really digest it and incorporate it into my life and then move forward. Right. Like, I don't know how to script in Python or C Sharp or Action Script 3, which is the thing that I got taught initially, which was already out of date by the time that I learned it. But it taught me how to look at a coding language and figure out how to read it, how to write it with little to no ramp back up. Yeah, there was definitely a sense that what you're really learning is how to learn, not what to learn. And meanwhile, Kvothe is just doing stuff out of habit. Now he hasn't been thinking about why to learn. It's almost like he's learning by rote. And he's not really thinking about what's his actual goal. He doesn't see the lessons and learn how to apply them to future lessons. And not only that, even if he decides, yeah, none of the stuff I've learned here is of value, he's really incredibly aimless. His whole thing with the Amir is kind of just a shot in the dark. And he keeps shooting the exact same direction to try and find something. Because he hit a random target at one point in that direction. And so he hasn't really, though, been thinking critically about what's his next step. What, what's he going to do when he finds the Amir? Right? Like, okay, so good job. You found the Amir. What then? What's your plan? Are you just going to observe them? Are you going to join them? Are you going to try and change them? Are you going to fight them? What are you going to do? What's your plan? He doesn't even know that. He doesn't really know how the world outside of the university works because he hasn't exposed himself to it. Speaking of not realizing how the world outside of the university works, people have seen him with sleet. People have started rumors about him courting Davy. These are not people that are viewed well by the masters at the university. These are just more nails in the coffin of why, if he were to pursue more education at the university right now, that he would just get roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, and he'd probably just willingly hit every single one of them, not realizing that there is an easier way. And here's the other thing. As desperate as Kvothe is for money, he doesn't need the university for that. No. In fact, actually, the university is a money sink. At this point, especially, because he doesn't know why he's doing it. He is in this position where he can do literally anything he wants. He just hasn't thought about what that is. It hasn't occurred to him. And so I really think that this is where Kvothe is able to finally break out of that cycle because he's got his instructors and his friends and mentors all telling him, hey, get your head up for air. See the world around you. Learn about the people and the places and the history because you're not going to learn it here at the university any more than you already have. And so finally... He's like, well, I guess they're telling me the truth that I should probably take a term off. Now, what do I want to do? I think I might want to go and figure out if there are any more libraries that maybe possibly have something about the Amir, except of course it probably doesn't because if my theory is right, then they've scrubbed everything. And 
It's not like I'm going to get access to any particular library. You know, I would probably need a patron for that. And I'm just like, go ask Threp. Go ask Threp if they have a library in his house. <laughs> Seriously, ask Threp. You're saying that most noble houses have books. Ask Threp. Ask any, literally anyone that you are on good terms with. I mean, for goodness sakes, how many people have you rubbed elbows with at the Aeolian? You stupid, stupid fork sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So finally, Foth listens and breaks the cycle. But he doesn't know what he's going to do. Which is the first time, really, that he's had to confront that. Where he doesn't have a next step. This is the place where he gets to pause and think about it. So I think that's pretty awesome. The university had been the center of my life for a solid year, which is a long time when you're 16. Now confronted with the necessity of leaving, I was utterly at sea with no idea of what I could do with myself. Yeah, that void of a routine can be so jarring. This is where Kvothe can really evaluate that routine and figure out what he really needs because the routine is no longer serving him and he's been serving it. Sora. Well, he's doing so much extra work just to make the routine happen. So he's serving the routine, not the other way around. So with that out of the way, it's time for us to talk about our Frenemos of the Week. Who'd you pick? Elksadol. Cool. Because he tells Kvothe to lift his head up for air, go do literally anything else. Just anything else. Literally anything else. And there's a reason that I really appreciate Elksadol in this particular moment. There was a semester when I was in school where I was just so stressed constantly. I kept applying myself and applying myself and trying to just barrel through the things that I was having a hard time with. I didn't take time because I didn't think I had time to stop, pause, think about things, understand what was going wrong. I would run into a roadblock and then bounce off of it a little bit and then run right back into that roadblock. And it was just torture. And I'm sure it was torture for you too. Yes, it was. You know exactly what I'm going to say. So one day you looked at me and you're like, this is the third day in a row that you've spent working on that same problem. We're going out. We're leaving the computer. You're not going to think about school. Or if you are thinking about school, you are thinking about it in a different way than just beating your head against this code that's not working. And I am like, petrified a little bit, actually, because I'm like, but if I don't get this right, I'm going to fail and I'm going to fail everything. And I'm thinking that my whole entire life up to this point was worthless or some shirt. That's not true. Taking a day or an afternoon off is not going to just tank your ability to graduate two years later. It's just not. Meanwhile, it might actually help you gain something like perspective which it did. We went to the Bellevue Art Museum and I got to think of something that was completely different than how to correct a gimbal lock 
problem on a spinning object in a game engine that was proprietary to my school using code that I was never taught how to do. I had to like figure out all this math that I was not prepared for and I had to figure out how to do it in a coding language that I wasn't familiar with and a buggy as heck software that eventually they decided was a lost cause. So some of the problems were self-inflicted and some of them were because the people who were teaching me were still learning things as they were teaching me things. So they were taught in their own cycles of kind of that sunk cost fallacy. And then I was stuck in my own cycles of that sunk cost fallacy. And when you're like, we're going to leave the apartment, you're leaving your computer here. Yep. And I was like, I don't want to talk about gimbal lock. I don't want to talk about your coding problems because I'm, I'm going to be real here. I was getting really sick of listening to you beat yourself up. I was at my wits end. I was like, we need to get away. We need to look for something that will actually be restorative because you've been beating your head against this code for three days now. What makes you think that it's suddenly going to change if you keep doing the same thing? Right. And at this point now, I will do exactly what you did. And if I have someone who is doing the same thing over and over and over again, hoping for a different result, I will just like, okay, we're going somewhere else. We're going to go toss a Frisbee back and forth, or we're going to go look at pretty art, or we're going to go to like a statue garden or a garden garden or any other thing where you get something that is completely different than the thing you are locked a cycle in. And it's all about getting a change in perspective and learning things that are unrelated and allowing your own experiential knowledge to help inform you as opposed to just what you have read about. So turning something that had been theoretical into something practical, something that actually exists and learning from that. And I think that the way that Elksadal purposefully was trying to provoke Quoth is the reason that Quoth listened, sort of, while still needing to get confirmation from like everyone else that he was being stupid. I'll say this also, if Elksadal had not put that story forward in a provocative manner, Quoth would have just written it off. He wouldn't have even asked, well, what's he trying to say? He wouldn't have even talked to his friends about it. And you can't get mad at someone for not instantly grokking the truth of something. Sometimes people need time and corroboration to help figure something out. I know I'm like this sometimes where I'll see something or someone will say something and it'll sit there in my head for a little bit, but I haven't fully digested it. And then when I start getting corroborating evidence that backs this up, it starts to click for me. And then I'm able to actually recognize the value of what's there. And I think this is kind of one of those situations. It was told to Kvothe in a way that would stick with him and would keep him thinking about it as opposed to just writing it off as a story. And I noticed that the people who get to live in Kvothe's head rent-free in a good way tend to treat him this way. Aventhe, Scarpy, Elks at all. Elvin. Okay, let's say those two names. Kilvin. Elodin. Right. So yeah, I think that's a good one. 
Thank you. So now it's time for us to go through our interesting fact of the week. And just a brief warning, this one's going to be a bit of a downer. Oh, no. So we're going to be talking about climate change. Oh, really? If you want to skip this, totally understand. But yeah, we're going to be talking about the downstream effects of climate change, particularly as they pertain to the moose population in Minnesota. Okay. So we often think of species depopulation as something that's due to human activity, specifically in the form of habitat destruction or sport hunting. However, oftentimes it's the little things that cause the biggest ripples. And in this case, it's going to be literally. So since 2006, the population of moose in Minnesota has fallen by 64%. Moose play an important role in the physical and spiritual survival of the Ojibwe and Chippewa people of the region. They've been a cultural touchstone for generations. So when moose started to mysteriously die off, the indigenous people of Minnesota took notice and started researching into this. So their researchers initially suspected that the recent rise in gray wolf population might be to blame as the warmer winters meant that the wolves' chief prey animals, white-tailed deer, were more abundant, and indeed moose calf mortality due to wolf attack had spiked significantly. However, it didn't explain the increased numbers of adult moose die-off because there wasn't any evidence that wolves were attacking adult moose. So, over the past 10 years, researchers have worked on an extensive study of adult moose behavior and mortality in an effort to understand what's happening to them and what can be done. Their method has been to comb the region from air to identify an adult moose to track. So they tranquilize the animal with a dart, land the helicopter, hike to the moose's location, and then tag the animal with a GPS collar. When a collared animal stops moving for more than six hours, the researchers receive an alert and dispatch a team to the moose's location. And more often than not, they discover a deceased animal from which they can extract blood and tissue samples. So these samples show two new factors that have been wreaking havoc on the moose population, specifically brainworms and ticks. While these have been part of the natural ecosystems for some time, the warmer winters have led to an explosion in the parasite population, and they're leading to big problems for the moose. So remember back when I said that they were seeing more white-tailed deer? Mm -hmm. Brainworms are a natural parasite of white-tailed deer, and the deer have evolved so that they don't experience any ill neurological effects from the worms. And then the worms end up laying their eggs in the feces, and then the cycle continues. However, as the populations exploded in white-tailed deer, and they're more active year-round in the area, that means that you know, more of the local slugs and snails are eating their feces, and then they crawl up onto the trees where the moose eat the lichen and moss, and inadvertently the snails, and then that's how they get infested. The moose don't have the deer's natural defense against the worms, and so it leads to a lot of issues where they just wander aimlessly. It does extensive neurological damage to them, and eventually they die from either starvation or hypothermia because they're not getting enough fat matter to actually keep them warm in the winter. The other thing that happens is ticks. So because thaws are happening sooner, the tick population has grown dramatically. There are more of them because they don't get killed off by the long winter freeze. And so they end up then having thousands of them on a single moose and it can lead to extensive irritation and itching. So the moose will then have to scrape up against trees to try and soothe the itching. 
And that leads them to oftentimes lose a lot of fur and sometimes skin even. Again, leading to infections and hypothermia. So it's these downstream effects that are really killing the moose population, more so than hunters or anything like that. And what this really points to is how climate change disproportionately affects the people who rely most closely on the natural ecosystem for their survival and cultural heritage. And it underscores why indigenous people are some of the most fierce advocates for protecting the environment from fossil fuel harvesting and consumption. And it highlights the way in which our actions often have major unforeseen consequences. So really what this points to, to me, is the increasing importance of thinking carefully about the sorts of goods and services that we consume. I, I know that an individual person doesn't have that much control, but we do have the ability to choose what sort of services we reward. So thinking about the climate impacts of using, for instance, a crypto mining system or something built on the blockchain, which can be incredibly deleterious from a carbon emissions perspective, or choosing a different power source, like oftentimes many municipalities will give you the option to choose a clean energy alternative. So consider looking into things like that so that you can reduce the amount of damage that you cause. And by increasing the demand for clean energies, we can make sure that people are actually investing in those. On top of that, look at the foods that you are consuming. Are you eating locally grown food? Are you frequenting grocery stores that have locally grown food? The shipping infrastructure for getting tomatoes from like Chile is nuts. Not only that, consider meat consumption. Factory farming has been shown to be a massive contributor to greenhouse gases, and it also leads to significant deforestation. So by reducing the demand for these sorts of products, we can help to curb these impulses. Now, I'm not saying you can never have a steak again or a burger or whatever, but if you are looking for ways to help improve your carbon footprint, looking for more vegetarian options is a good way to move forward. Right. Like we've kind of moved our diet to more plant-based proteins than we had been before. And it, one thing, it's helped us lose some weight. It's helped us not have to really put too much effort into thinking about what we want for food at the grocery store, especially in a time where the grocery store is really the main source of other people that we've run into. It's, you know, helped us keep from adding to the number of people that have caught COVID. I'm not saying that to be sanctimonious. I just, I don't want to get sick. It's kind of selfish, but like we have a list that we follow pretty much every week. We get the exact same thing at the exact same time. And it's minimally affected by the supply chain issues that have been going on because we mostly get things that are staple foods like beans and rice and yogurt. like. <laughs> and so like I say, you don't have to be a saint. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to go vegan. And you're not a better person for doing that necessarily. But you can help reduce your carbon footprint by choosing locally grown produce and limiting or just reducing by like a day your meat consumption. Find Something else like chickpeas are great. Beans are great. There are a lot of recipes that you can have that don't involve 
animal products. So there's a lot of options out there and you can help do your part. Again, I'm not saying that this absolves the structural forces at play, but you can at least help put some of the thumb on the scale. So with that out of the way, let's go to the thing of the week. It's your turn. What do you have? All right. So a few weeks ago, Will and I wanted to do something other than just our normal YouTube scroll for our evening entertainment. And we both thought about it. And we were talking about Sidney Poitier after he passed. And when I was somewhere around 10 to 15 or so, like, I remember seeing To Sir With Love on TV constantly. I don't know what channel it was on anymore because it was a while ago. Because <laughs> I'm old. But I remember that being one of the more formative movies in my early adolescence. And remembering also a lot of movies and TV specials in the early 90s that I think kind of went to helping this weird cultural belief that we are over racism. But they also showed me a lot of how to recognize other people complexly, regardless of skin color, regardless of culture, regardless of where they were born. So I wanted to show Will to Sir with Love because he's never seen it before. And it was such a big part of me growing up. And then the next night, he's like, you know, what would be really great if we continued on this trend of watching movies that were kind of nostalgia for us from that time period where like we were younger in our younger adolescence and maybe they were movies that wouldn't have shown up as classics anymore either or well known so he showed me sneakers also with Sidney Poitier yes and it was so much fun to just think about movies that I loved when I was younger and wondering if they were things that Will would find value in and wanting to show them to him in just this very pure, I think you would like this. Let's go ahead and watch this thing that is so nostalgic for me, but would also bring value to you. And you thought the same way. You're like, okay, so if you like that, you're going to probably love this. And I love this. So I want to see if you love this. And yeah, sometimes you're going to come across something that doesn't hit quite right. Like, Will was not a kid when he first saw the never-ending story. So I suspect partly just because he likes to be a contrarian and also partly because it's a 1980s kids movie. <laughs> he uh, <laughs> loudly... Ugh. I kind of hate the never-ending story. Right. It is... <laughs> to, to, to give my hot take on this, one... The story does, in fact, end. And the second thing is, thank God that it ends. I never thought it would. <laughs> it, is, it is too short for its title and too long to be worth it. And I loved this movie when I was a kid. And I love it now because of nostalgia. So, yeah, sometimes <laughs> things are going to be misses. But I highly recommend find a friend, find a partner, somebody that hasn't seen a movie that you loved when you were younger and show it to them and be okay if they don't love it. For the record, Phoenix loved sneakers, so. Yes. 
just to give you guys sort of the capsule review, it's sort of like an early 90s Ocean's Eleven. It's a heist movie, espionage movie, and a hacker movie all rolled into one. And uh, so you've got this all-star ringer cast. So you've got Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier, Dan Aykroyd, back when Dan Aykroyd was relevant, plus River Phoenix, back when River Phoenix was relevant. And alive. Then you have Mary McDonald and Ben Kingsley and <laughs> Stephen Tobolowski shows up. Like, it is just a who's who. Oh, yeah. And Donald Logue shows up with a weird Euro trash accent. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's great. It's a lot of fun. I strongly recommend it. We both had a great time with the sense of humor, with the cleverness that the characters use pulling off their elaborate heists. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. I really loved the fact that you wanted to show it to me. And I really enjoyed that evening. So yeah, nostalgic movie nights are a lot of fun. Yeah, so that's my recommendation. It might be a little bit of a pain in the butt to find it on a streaming service. We had to rent them, but... It's worth it. All right, so with that, I think it's time for us to share our seven words. You have the books this week. Yes, and um, there's no shortage. I have a lot of orange highlighter, like... If I do a flip book of the chapters that we read, there's more orange than not, maybe. Not really, but there's a lot. So I'm not going to regale you with like all of them, but some of them are interesting. And I know my own story too. The church courts can't hang a man. He looked at all of them expectantly. It was a little heavy-handed, wasn't it? The king's task was a nice touch. It can't all be historians and philosophers. And what leads you to this belief? Like, there's more. Like, I haven't even gotten halfway through. I think I gave up a little bit partway through this. You know that's not true about Davy. Like, there are just so many. <laughs> but I think the one I'm going to actually choose is sometimes finding nothing can be finding something. All right. So here's what I have for my seven words. We won't talk about Bruno. Full stop. <laughs> That's that. Well, full stop. Okay. Okay. <laughs> bonus recommended thing if you haven't seen Encanto watch Encanto we're not going to talk about Bruno fair enough but if you've seen it I apologize on Will's behalf for the fact that you now have it stuck in your head I don't toss a coin shut up <laughs> <laughs> anyway so that I'd like to thank you for potting with me thank you for potting with me and thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 50 through 52 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of The Long Goodbye. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. <laughs>
If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to the pod, special bonus pods, posters, I realize I'm late, but sorry, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Talkity talk, 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 talk.